How relevant do you think it is to bring compassion into the workplace? Oh, it's very relevant. It's going to create more productivity. It's going to create loyalty, help retention. If you don't have that in the workplace, you're not going to build your talent. We spend about $8 billion a year on diversity and inclusion training in the workplace. It really isn't resonating. It's more like a check the box type of thing. I always say bias is a struggle between curiosity and the fear of the unknown. And if you let curiosity win and expose yourself to people or things that are different than you, you realize we have a lot more in common than different. Hello, I'm Robert Tame, and welcome to Working for Compassion. This podcast explores how using compassion and emotional intelligence can improve people's work lives and create competitive advantage for your business. I'll be asking my guests how we can make the world of work a kinder, more engaging and productive place to be. Tune in to learn compassion tips for yourself and your teams before your people start dropping out. Today, I'm speaking with Ashish Kasol. Ashish is the co-founder of Consciously Unbiased and CEO of Higher Talent. Ashish founded Consciously Unbiased to disrupt the way corporations looked at diversity and inclusion. It has quickly grown, helping businesses move from intent to action to amplify inclusion in the workplace. Partners include Bank of America, Viacom, and Estee Lauder. On the podcast, we talk about how you can't easily get rid of biases, but you can manage them, and how COVID has shown us that we have a lot more in common than we thought, why vulnerability is a strength, not a weakness, and what diversity, inclusion, and belonging should really look like. We discuss why Ashish's mentor has coached him to slow down, to speed up, and why curiosity is the best way to create a more compassionate workplace. This is a really inspiring conversation about the work Ashish is doing. And a big thank you to Misty Huckabee from my mentoring group at Seacare Stanford for making the introduction. Enjoy the conversation. It's good to see you, Ashish, and welcome to the Working for Compassion podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. To kick off... How's the quality of your work life at the moment, Ashish? Honestly, it's actually really good. I am really passionate about what we're doing, so it makes it fun. And as much as it's work from home right now, for the most part, it's been great. I do wish we had a little bit more human interaction in person, but we'll get there. So I'd be interested for you to tell our listeners just the journey you've had from creating and running higher talent to setting up consciously unbiased. Absolutely. So I have been running a staffing firm called Higher Talent for the last 20 years. And our real focus has been on helping clients find diverse candidates. So for example, women in technology or somebody from the LGBT community in science or in business and things like that. And so about two and a half years ago, I was working on a Sunday and I was thinking about, you know, all these large companies have been asking for diverse talent from their senior management's perspective, right? They're creating these corporate missions, but it's not really flowing down to resonate with the actual hiring manager. And so they're not hiring fast enough. And so I was like, why is that? And so I took a step back and I said, you know what? Let's look at what we're ha- what's happening in society. And so if you look at what's happening in society two years ago, and now it's probably even more prevalent, is that the left and the right speak past each other. 
and we're not hearing each other and everyone's a victim. And so I'm like, okay, that's we've been common. We're all victims. So let's start there. And the reason I say that is because commonality builds understanding and empathy, right? And that's, yeah. that's the way forward. Then the second thing is we spend about $8 billion a year on diversity and inclusion training in the workplace. And it really isn't resonating. It's more like a check the box type of thing. And the reason I say that is because you're forced to go to training because your manager, who's like your parent, forces you to go. And so you're already um, not really interested. In, and so you're like, whatever, dad. <laughs> and then you show up. And then in our efforts to be inclusive, we've made training generic. And ultimately, I felt that you don't make change, behavior change happen unless you check the mind and the heart. And so you have to customize it. And then the last piece was, if you are actually interested in the training and you show up, a lot of it stemmed on guilt and guilt is one strategy to motivate people. But I think the majority of us don't change through the process of guilt. We sort of dig in. And so if you think about it, ultimately what happens is, you know, what you know, you learn something new that you didn't know while you're going through this diversity training, which doesn't make you feel good because you didn't realize you're doing something that is not nice. And so then you feel like crap and you keep doing what you're doing when you leave. And so I was like, let's reframe the argument around biases. Cause so everyone talks about how we have to get rid of biases. And I don't think, you can really get rid of them, what you can do is manage them. And so and so I said, let's reframe the argument and say biases are based on life experiences, how we grew up, our family value, our community, and part of it's about survival. So let's own it, let's be proud about it. And now let's now it's a matter of how you apply it and when you apply it. And so that's where the term consciously unbiased came about. So you touched on what's happened over the last 18 months with COVID. I mean, it's had a massive impact on the world of work, not least people working from home. What do you think impact it's had on organizations about them becoming more consciously unbiased? Do you think something that you've noticed? Yeah, you know what, honestly, for the most part, I think from a bias standpoint or from a diversity standpoint, it's actually helped us, right? Because what has really made myths too is that you and I look different, right? And you're in, in London and I'm in New York. So geographically, we're also different. But you could have a dog running back behind you and I could have a dog running behind me, right? And so we realize that even though we look different, we may talk different, we're going through the same things. And so I think the understanding, it's building understanding and more acceptance of how we relate to each other. And I think that's part of overcoming bias. I always say bias is a struggle between curiosity and the fear of the unknown. And if you let curiosity win and expose yourself to people or things that are different than you, you realize we have a lot more in common than different. And that's kind of what's happening through the workplace because we're all on Zoom calls. And I know there's Zoom fatigue, but it definitely helps us understand people's lives better. So it's almost broken down some barriers by seeing into people's true selves and true environments and what's going on in their life rather than just this individual that pitches up to work. Yeah, and you think about it, most people go to work and they have a different persona than when they're at home. But now that you're mis- mixed the two, your real self is really coming out. And are realizing we're a lot, a lot more in common. And why do you think that is, Ashish, that human beings just tend to have this different persona at home and work? I'm really interested in that and how maybe we can encourage that change so that we do see people in their full form, their genuine form, rather than wearing these different masks. I think when you show up to work, you're sort of molding into the way your manager wants you to be, right? Instead of who you are. And it's because you want to impress and you want to reduce the drama. But the reality is it creates a lot of stress in who you are as a person. And so it makes you less productive. And so I think if you try to do that at home while working, 
your significant other is going to be like, why are you being so different? And so you're getting called out on that stuff. And so you're sort of melding the two worlds. And so your boss is really getting to know who you are. And then they're understanding how to manage you better because they understand that piece. Some of the research that I've done, you talk a lot about connecting hearts and minds to affect mm -hmm. change. I really agree with that. In your view, what's the best way of encouraging leaders to engage with their hearts more when they actually show up for work? I call it strength and vulnerability, right? So vulnerability generally was considered a weakness as leadership. And the reality is it's actually a strength because if you show people that you're human, they're relate to that and they're willing to go to war with you essentially right and so they're gonna be more productive they're you're gonna build loyalty and so i think if you show some vulnerability as leader you give your organization permission to be honest and so then you get the, the truth comes out which allows you to be more productive and allows you allows you to innovate so it's actually unleashing a lot of creativity are you seeing leaders becoming more vulnerable absolutely yeah the other thing that this has done is because we're not physically in the office, we have to figure out ways to keep the culture going, right? And so we're being more intentful about what we're doing and how to keep the, the team motivated. And if you think about what COVID's done, it's now that we're sort of breaking out of it, 95% of people are evaluating their jobs and their lives and where they live and what they want to do. And if you don't align with what their true self is, then they're probably, you're probably going to have a talent shortage in your organization. That's interesting, certainly in the UK. There's employers really struggling to find the numbers of people to go back and work in their businesses. Is that something that's happening in, in New York as well? It is. But I think the reason behind it is, is not what everyone talks about. Everyone talks about it's because we have a higher unemployment compensation currently, right? Which, but the reality is that, and, and Congress has been trying to push up the, the minimum wage gap, right? And, and, and sort of make it a $15 an hour national policy. And I think... There's two flaws in the argument. They're saying people aren't going back to work because you're getting paid too much not to work. And I think what's happened over the last year is, is the Amazon effect where the politicians weren't able to increase the quality of life or quality of living for people. These large companies have decided to increase their minimum wages on their own, right? And so Amazon is now paying you $15 an hour plus healthcare. Whereas if you worked in a restaurant, you got paid maybe $7 an hour plus tips with the hope that you get the 15 and you still don't have healthcare. And so if all these people have been deployed because the restaurants were shut down into these warehouses and all these other corporate positions, now that the restaurants are opening back up, if they don't start paying those salaries, they're not going to pull that talent back, right? Because why would you go and take a risk to earn the same amount? And I think that's the true reason why you have this, this shortage. And then the second thing is reality is anytime something dramatic happens or an innovation happens, the skill sets change and what we need in, in, in our workers. And I think COVID has really digitized us and sort of forced the need for different types of talent. And so I think part the, the other part of the shortage is that we have to basically invest in retraining some workers that weren't skilled in these areas. I'd agree with you. Certainly, having worked in the hospitality business, that's my way I'm seeing it. And, and I think that certain industries that maybe have got away with not treating workers as well, not treating them as compassionately or paying them just even the basics are going to have to catch up. And that's definitely yeah. a positive thing. You wrote an article in Forbes about leaders moving from a me to we mindset to have a positive mm -hmm. impact on their organizations. Do you have any good stories around that where you have seen leaders moving from this me to we mindset? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of these large companies have been really been intent, intentful about how they're 
managing their staff and becoming more interactive. And they're realizing that the, we're all going through the same pressures. And if we don't start dealing with it and get ahead of it, then we're going to start losing our people. And so companies like if you look at Manpower, which is a large staffing company globally, they made a concerted effort to make sure that they're giving everybody an opportunity to grow. And they're being intentful about being inclusion, inclusionary. And they've done it from the management down. So they've been hiring women and women on people of color and putting them in roles that are at the executive level. So they're, they're sort of living their truth. And I think I'm seeing that across every organization. I do think it takes time because you don't just find the talent and build it. But I think you, if, if we're all playing the long game, I think you're going to see this whole shift of me to we. And, and I think COVID really taught us that because I could be rich living in my penthouse and not talk to anybody or see anybody and not care what's happening to the lower income people. But the reality is this virus is so contagious that if you don't take care of every single person, this is never going away. And so it's sort of forcing that mindset of let's stop being selfish about ourselves and let's start thinking about the collective. And so all our articles and our discussions this year is actually about moving from me to we. Yeah, we've recognized that we are interdependent and we can't live on our islands necessarily because the pandemic has every single person on the planet, I think, has been affected in some way or other. And and yeah. again, of course, the pandemic's been terrible, but looking for the positives, that's definitely one of them. Yeah. I also was reading about encouraging diversity. It's not just about race diversity. You were talking about autism inclusion, for example, and I also came across something I'd never really looked at before, something called neurodiversity. Is this a conversation in your experience that organizations are looking at, at how they can increase representation from all sorts of diverse groups, not just racially diverse groups? No, absolutely. I mean, if you think about the companies are in the business of making money, right? They're not a charity. And so they're not doing things necessarily because it's the right thing to do. It's the mix of it's the right thing to do. And is also creating ROI in my business. And so ultimately, when we talk about diversity, we want to get to diversity of thought because that unleashes creativity. So I always say, if you look at your organization and your goal is to have 30% of women in your company, but all your women are in the marketing group, right? And all your engineers are Indian and all your finance people might be Asian, then you've essentially... You might at a high level have diversity, but you don't get diversity of thoughts. So you're not getting any ROI on that. So what you really have to do is start managing and measuring at the micro level rather than the macro level and make sure that the groups are diverse that are working together. I think that's where you get true diversity. And so, and then the other part you're talking about neurodiversity and autism is you just mentioned in the beginning of the podcast that it's been really hard to hire people, right? So why not rethink talent and put them in the right spots? And so I always say like, if you look at an autism, have you ever seen the movie Rain Man? Yeah. Do you remember Dustin Hoffman's character? Yeah. Yeah. So I studied computer science and that that character could run circles around me in math, right? And so why not take somebody who's really good at a certain area and put them in the right spots and then manage to where they are rather than us trying to get them to come to where we are? And I think if you do that, you'll get a lot more ROI from what that person, that character would be in that role than you would on what you call average or normal like me. And so that's where we start rethinking skill sets and what's really needed in different jobs and and who's available for that talent pool because we have to expand our talent pool if there's no talent available today. Absolutely. And I, I think breaking down all of these barriers and really focusing on skills. I, I happen to have a daughter that has been diagnosed with ADHD and the job that she does is, you know, she's on her feet all the time. She talks quite a lot. She's got a very lively personality and the job that she's doing, that's absolutely 
right for the job she's doing. So it's recognizing what people's skills are and, and putting them in the right jobs is, is good for the person that they're, they're going to feel motivated and enjoying what they're doing. And then, as you said, the organization is going to a good result from that and they're going to be productive and effective. So I think yeah. and here's, an, here's another story. I went to Enwise doing a lot around neurodiversity, right? And they had a gentleman they hired about a year and a half ago who's now their resident expert on Excel. And so he, he did a little talk about like, how do you communicate better with him? And so he said, you know, if you ask me a question and you don't wait for me to answer it, I'm assuming you don't want an answer. <laughs> I was like, I was like, you know, we should all be communicating this way. Right? It's not just neurodiverse. It's like he goes, if you organize your thoughts logically and you come to me with a structured con- concept, I will get it. But if you're scattered, then I won't. And that's we should all be communicating that way. I don't think it's a neurodiverse thing. I think it's just how we should be communicating, so we reduce misunderstandings. And the beautiful thing about that is we can learn from each other with people with all sorts of different skills. So we're just all going to improve. That's genius. Absolutely. <laughs> you talked about the micro versus macro and there's one thing getting companies to actually have uh, diverse recruitment policies and encouraging different diverse groups but mm-hmm. it then comes down to retaining them just getting people into a company is, is one step but the next step is retaining them so how can organizations go about that because they've surely got to change the conditions to encourage that retention no absolutely and i think so you start looking at your policies right because it's you're spinning your wheels if you're going to bring people in and you don't make them feel welcome right and you're going to reduce your amount of productivity if they feel like they're struggling to belong but if for example you're targeting women, more women in the workforce with your organization. And today, they're still the primary caregiver as much as you'd love to say men are doing more, right? And so if the, if their child has a snow day, for example, and they're, it's not canceled, but they're coming in late, and you have a work policy where they have to be here at 9.30 a.m., every, they're going to end up feeling guilty because they dropped their child off at school earlier than they're supposed to. And they're going to feel guilty because they also show up at work a little bit later than they could because they're supposed to because they had to drop their child off a little bit later. And so that person's going to not feel good about either situation. And that's not a way to retain people. So I think you have to start mapping your policies to the types of people in your organization. And then number two is you have to build an organization where you have support groups for each other and, and let them share their ideas and then let them be heard. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. You, you talk about Bias training is not enough for organizations. It's a starting point, but they need to go further. And within your company, you've introduced conscious conversations. Can you tell me more about what they look like in practice? Yeah. So conscious conversations, the idea is that we have a framework of what unconscious bias is, right? So we define that and we make you self-reflect on it by asking you certain questions and making you realize you do have some inherent biases and they're not always bad. And then we talk about specifically within your groups, like how is it working today within your organization? Let's do a deep dive within the group, within the company and understand where they feel today. And then we ask them to share their stories because ultimately, if you think about even what happened, Black Lives Matter, right? I could tell you this is what's happening. You can see it on the news. But if your coworker tells you what it's like to experience a day-to-day life walking around as a black male in, in the U.S., now it's personal, right? It goes from other people's problems. That's my friend. That's my coworker. This shouldn't happen. We need to fix this. And so the idea is to 
through storytelling, bring out people's experiences so that others can learn from it. And if they haven't actually experienced it or realized it, now they are, they're aware of it. So awareness is the first step to solving. And it sounds like encouraging other people to walk in others' shoes as well, to try and see things in a different perspective. Absolutely. And you talk about equity playbooks that you help companies develop. Can you tell me a bit more about what an equity playbook would look like? I'll take a step back and I'll tell you what my concept around diversity, inclusion and belonging is. So diversity is when your organization has so many different people in the culture that you stop noticing because it feels natural. Inclusion is when those diverse people feel empowered to share their input. But two, belonging is when diverse people are not only encouraged to share, but their voices are also celebrated for its unique perspective and acted upon. And that's, I think, the true level of what we have to get to. And so it's one thing for you to say, okay, we're bringing these people in. We're trying to create a sense of belonging. But then you're not doing anything about it, right? So I can give you an idea, but because it came from me, it's getting ignored. But then when you say that same idea, all of a sudden it's being received well and said, oh, that's a great idea. I guess that's a great concept that Robert brought up. And so the idea is to give people the ability or the permission to be honest and also to be heard. Okay. So that permission and, and being heard... And at the moment, that's just not really operating out there, that, that people don't feel they're, they're being heard. Yeah. In fact, I, was, I have this whole thing around permission to be honest. And so I, um, if you want the truth, you have to give people permission to be honest, like, whether you like it or not. So pre-COVID, I used to fly to clients every week, pretty much. And when I would come home, my wife didn't want me to go out and do client meetings at night because we haven't spent enough time together. And so, but I started to do that, right? Cause I had clients in, in New York. And so I'd be like, you know, honey, next Wednesday I have this dinner meeting. And then for, from Thursday till next Wednesday, I would get some guilt things going on. Right. And so then I started telling her Wednesday morning, Hey, tonight I have a dinner. And so one day she said to me like, why are you telling me last minute? I said, well, cause you don't give me permission to be honest. And she's like, Oh, <laughs> and so she changed that behavior which allowed me to be more honest and, and more forthcoming. And so think about how that works in business. Is that an example of a micro progression? I'll give you a better example of a micro progression. So micro progressions are little action steps that we can take to create positivity in the workplace, whether it's around diversity, inclusion, or if it's just how do we work better as teams. And so one example of micro progression is when all this COVID stuff started happening, I would do all these Zoom calls and sometimes there are sales pitches, right? And, and so... I had a tendency to cut people off, right? And so if you're a woman or a minority and I'm talking over you, then what does that message send to you? It basically says, your thoughts aren't important to me and you're not important to me. And that's not the intention I'm doing, but that's the result that's happening, right? And so that's an, a little dig that I'm doing against you that I didn't realize I'm doing. So now I just actively listen to what you ask me, pause, digest it, and I respond to the question you're asking rather than throwing out some stuff that I want to tell you. And that builds trust, relationship, openness, right? A better team environment. So that's an example of a micro-progression that we can work on. So it's developing new habits, new muscles. Any other micro-progressions you want to share with us that you're working on, Ashish? Yeah, here's another great one. You tell me a racist joke. What's, what do we tend to do? We tend to laugh at them, right? Either because they're, we think they're funny or we're uncomfortable. But either way, what is that message sent back to you that says it's okay to do this? And so now if you stop laughing, if I stop laughing when you tell me this racist joke, it does two things. And one, it tells you that this is not cool. It's not okay. We shouldn't be doing this. But number two, subconsciously, I'm telling my brain, this is 
this is not right. And, and I'm going to stop even thinking that way, right? Because part of the reason we laugh is there's some truth or element that we believe is true about whatever the stereotype we've, we've joked about. And so we're re- reprogramming our brains to say, well, that's not, that's not true. That's not good. Yeah, I like that. One other thing about the Consciously Unbiased Project, there's um, a piece on the website that you're working with schools, helping mm-hmm. them with, with doing some training, which looks fascinating. And you, you talk about developing a culture code that the students participating creating that i just wondered how that's going and also are the culture codes from different schools looking quite different to each other or there are a lot of similarities i mean there's definitely a fundamental baseline to the culture code right it's about treating each other with respect not making judgments without understanding somebody, you know, some basic things, but then we ask them to create the culture they want in the organization in their school. And so it's going well. We're rolling it out across schools in the U.S., and we're doing it both from a public-private partnership. So we're talking to local communities and the government and the State Department about programs that we can put into place to teach children how to um, manage their biases better. And the corporations who want to help in the community basically sponsor these these trainings so the free education for the students. And so it does two things. It one makes a better environment for school and I think lowers the spread of hate, hopefully. And it allows the companies to sort of get their brands in front of these kids early on in their careers and early on in their lives. And so I'm super excited about it. And I think the third thing that's a net result of this, it's easier to change someone's behavior when they're a child and than it is when we're 40 or 50 years old, right? And what but it but it also does is if you're learning these things in school, if your parents end up saying something that's not really PC, the kids are teaching their parents to be more understanding. And so it's like having a network effect. I, I think that's getting them young. I learn lots from my children. They're teenagers, but yeah, I think that's right, that they can, that they can help you because they're closer to things at times. Yeah. You also talked about how important data can be in measuring the progress of people that are trying to improve inclusion and diversity in their organizations. So how exactly can that data be used to progress diversity? Well, if you can't measure, you can't fix it. That's the first fundamental thing, right? In anything we do. And so if you start measuring your pipeline of candidates that are coming in, how many are diverse, then that's the first step to sort of pushing diversity within your organization, right? And then when you get to the hiring phase, you say, okay, we're not finding qualified candidates. Well, I always implore people, say, let's go back and look at your data and say, how many people were runner-ups in your organization that were minorities? They were the number two person for the job. And if they were the number two person for the job, then do you think there was some bias around us hiring? because we were trying to bring people who are similar to us and we're not, we're unconsciously doing this. And when we go through that exercise, you realize that you actually have a ton of diverse talent out there that we're just not bringing in, bringing in because the organization is not used to it. And so it gets rid of that argument of there's not enough diverse talent out there. And so that that's an example of measuring and, and acting upon it. And now that you're there, you can take that and in the interview process, we have a training called UB hiring, which is unconscious bias hiring. And how do you check yourself on what's really important when you're interviewing somebody versus what's where you're jumping to conclusions or what your gut telling you, right? And so a great part of that is if you think about culture, right? Everyone talks that we need to add, we need to have people who fit our culture. Well, culture is code for like, are they like me? But if we flip that and say, 
why don't we look at your values and your mission and align those and create questions around the value and the mission, then you've turned, you're still maintaining your culture, but you've turned it from a subjective evaluation to an objective evaluation. And that's how you start bringing people of diverse talent in and have the same sort of value proposition that you're bringing to the table in your organization. In the UK, we have something called the the gender pay gap, which organizations of a certain size have to publish the statistics of what is the uh, the difference between what they're paying males and females in, in mm-hmm. the organization, which I think has been very positive and, and, and created a lot of companies to, to look at that. Is that yeah. something that's happening in the US? Absolutely. We're doing it in a way that I think needs improvement, but we have made it a policy where you can't ask people their previous salary, which is helping to close the wage gap. And then companies on their own are starting to, to figure out if there's a wage gap internally and they're starting to try to fix that. It's definitely going to be a long process because we're trying to reverse hundreds of years of <laughs> policies, but I think, I think we're getting there. Good. So slow progress, but moving in the right yeah. direction. I wanted to change gears now and, and really get into a discussion about compassion. Mm-hmm. Just, just to start, what's your understanding of the word compassion? Hmm. I'd say compassion is having empathy and concern for other people's sufferings and misfortunes. And, and I think that understanding allows you to build commonality with each other. And what about compassion and the workplace? How relevant do you think it is to bring compassion into the workplace? Oh, it's very relevant. It's going to create more productivity for you. It's going to create loyalty. It's going to help retention. So I think if you don't have that in the workplace, then you're not going to be able to hold on to your talent. In terms of organizations you work with many, mm-hmm. are you seeing this becoming a higher objective for them to encourage compassion as part of their culture, as part of their leadership values? Absolutely. I think the challenge, honestly, is that companies are doing these things and they're spending a lot of money on training, but the next step is sort of how do you turn this into daily habits, right? Because it's one thing if you go into a training and be inspired, but then your day-to-day comes back at you. And so that's where you're asking about the micro-progressions. That's where we, we rolled out micro-progressions for organizations where every month we send them a story that connects the mind and the heart. We give them the science behind it. So you're both emotionally connected and logically understood of what, what we're asking you to do. And then we ask you to practice that thing. And so the idea is that each month, if you take on one thing across an organization, maybe over 12 months, I pick up three and I actually adopt them on behavior. And you might pick up a different three and adopt them on your behavior. And ultimately what happens is you're changing the DNA of the organization. And so that's kind of the approach of it. Because if I asked you to change 12 things today, or you asked your wife or husband 12 things, or told them 12 things you didn't like about them and they wanted to improve in one day, they probably wouldn't talk to you and they probably wouldn't respond. But if each month you work together on something, then that's more likely doable and, and turns into a habit. So slowly, slowly is the, uh, is the recommendation. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that. And those companies that maybe are, are holding back on bringing compassion into the workplace, why do you think that is? And sometimes they view it as a sign of weakness. There's a lot of culture built in that you're trying to change in the organization. You're worried about turnover of the people who are there today, but I think you're on the wrong side of history if you don't bring this in. So old fashioned attitudes. And be really interested in your stories about compassion, Ashish. Do you have any stories where you've received compassion at work? I know that you're the CEO of 
of two companies and you're you're the leader but do you have any stories where you've been on the receiving end of compassion you put me on the spot here i have to think of one <laughs> it's been a while since i've been i mean every day there's something that people do that are little things that show you compassion i tend to work a lot of hours and so people keep calling me and saying how can i help to make you work less right and so that's a very simple thing that you could do to your coworker if you if you don't have enough work to do and you're overloaded and the other person's overloaded help i think that's a, that's one that's constantly done with my team which is amazing and it also mm. shows their, their their passion about what we're doing and what about witnessing suffering in organizations is is that something that you've seen and how that's impacted you yeah i mean anything with sort of racism or discrimination definitely is, is part of the reason I started this is because we have to fix this thing. It can't keep happening, you know? And so I think the, the one thing is like, I see a lot of people or companies saying, I don't want to work with that company because they're X, Y, and Z, right? But you're not going to fix a problem by running away with it. So we run towards it and say, okay, let's help fix this for this company and organization if they're ready to receive it. And have you got any specific examples you could share with us? Yeah, I mean, I won't disclose anyone's, name or client, but there's an organization that was having issues with how they treated women within their groups, right? And so we helped them sort of realize what they were doing and then help them map out a policy on how to fix that and also help them map out organizational changes you need, you need to make, right? Because you can't necessarily fix the culture if you don't move out the people that are causing the massive issues. And so when you highlight the fact that this is a mission we're going to change and the ones who don't want to follow along they'll organically just leave. And then there's some that dig in and want to resist it and they'll have to be sort of moved out, unfortunately, if they don't follow the new direction. What kind of time frame did that take, that process when you're working with that client? I'd say it's a three-month planning process at a minimum. And then you have to make some really quick changes from there to show the organization that you're taking this seriously, which means moving out people who may be very productive in their work piece, but they're creating a lot of chaos around the culture. And you'll realize that one person, as much as they're productive, is not the same productivity you can get from a whole organization. And so those tough choices have to be made at that time. And on the flip side, are there any stories that you could share where either you have witnessed some great acts of compassion in an organization or, or, or something that you managed to generate where you were able to be compassionate to a colleague or, or your team? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's a large company in Minneapolis that does a great job of becoming inclusive, creating an environment that's welcoming. They have sessions every day where people can come in and share, have conscious conversations, essentially, and share their concerns and thoughts. And they've created ERG groups or inclusive resource groups where groups um, who have commonality or want to understand a certain topic can come together and, and get there. So, for example, like, if I didn't know much about the LGBT community, I could go to their ERG group and sit in on it and help me understand more about that, more about those, about that organization or that culture. And I think that understanding really helps change the culture overall. What's the hardest part of running your two businesses? Time, <laughs> time management, right? One's a personal passion, the other one's a business that I've just been running for a long time. Is that balancing your time and managing the priorities? Yeah, and then just hiring, hiring people who can take on different pieces of, of the things I was doing today to allow us to scale. What are the most significant lessons you've learned 
running these businesses? I think the biggest one is sometimes you got to slow down to speed up. We're in this hurry to do things all the time, but that doesn't allow you to see the big picture. And so I think even the way consciously and bias came about was I had a mentor who made me slow down to speed up. And so every week I would spend four hours a week not doing anything but just thinking, right? And maybe that's going through a walk, but not getting involved in the day-to-day of the business. And that was able to allow me to come up with that next great idea that I think we could innovate within our business. And that's how this came, this came about. That's a great output from that. Is that something you're able to continue? Are you still adopting mm-hmm. that? Absolutely. And then the second thing I do is in between meetings, even if I'm in the same room, I will go to the door, open the door, breathe for five seconds and reset my mind to get focused on the next thing that we're doing. What do you think are the the key qualities a leader needs to be successful today and in, in the future? The first one is listening and having a pulse within your organization, right? We have tend to, as leaders, want to say it's our idea and our thing and not really pay attention to what's actually happening on the ground. So I think the first thing is actually listening to what people are saying, receive a process and then figure out how to make it better or do something with that. The second thing is hiring people who are better than you at different jobs that you need done. Right. I think a lot of times for job security, we'll hire people who are not as strong as as us. And that kind of doesn't do a good service as a good, as a leader. The leader should be the person who's like, your first goal is to basically place yourself out of job. And if you do that well, then you know that you're, you have a great organization underneath you. Any others? I mean, compassion, empathy are important, understanding people's drivers. And then not everyone needs to be communicated the same way. They all have different idiosyncrasies and like how we respond to things. And so you have to make sure you're adaptable to different people's needs and styles to get the most out of them. Yeah, I like all of those. Uh, and are there any leaders that either you're working with or, or you've come across or read about that, that you admire that seem to be leading with compassion and empathy? I have a friend, Carlos, who works at Trip Action as the chief revenue officer, and he's always been an amazing sales leader and he gets the most out of his teams. And it's not by accident. It's because of how he understands his group, their motivations and how to motivate them in the right way and also tell them to slow down when they need to. So he really understands his team by the sound of it. Yeah. And are there any things that you'd really like to change at your company or companies? I think we're still sort of navigating how to keep the culture going with everyone distributed everywhere and not able to see each other physically that often. So that's a work in progress because it's a result of COVID. Are you hoping that that situation changes soon? Are you planning to be back in person with people? We are going to be back in the office, but it's not going to be every day anymore. So I think it's we're going to let people work the way they want to. As long as they're showing productivity, then we're okay. And so if they do want to come, they're welcome to come in. And it just we're doing sort of clusters. So if you and I work together, for example, then we want to make sure we're both coming at the same time so we get more productivity out of it. It wouldn't be that you come in on Monday, I come in on Wednesday, we never interact. So we're just asking to do it in that sort of format. And how are you reaching these decisions with your teams? I'm asking them what would make them happy and productive. And just thinking about you personally, you're a busy man. You said time's really important. How how do Mm -hmm. you manage your stress and looking after your well-being during these pressurized times? There's three things. One is that you can only control what you can control and the rest of it you just have to deal with and not stress about it. And so... I'm very mindful of that. The second thing is I, I do exercise every day. 
it gets the heart going and the blood flowing and the mind moving. So I started the day off that way. And then I think the breathing and slowing down is really important in between meetings. Yeah, the three really good exercises to just to keep the mind fit and the body. Yeah. Final question. What single thing could be done to create a more compassionate work life for the majority of people? Encouraging and curiosity in the workplace. Can you expand on that? Yeah, I think curiosity is the thing that gets us overcoming our biases, right? And so if you encourage an environment where people are interacting with each other that may be different or maybe the same, but they actually get to know each other on a deeper level, I think that's how you create a more inclusive environment. And so I think encouraging that within your organization is really important to, to fixing the culture. What are you really curious about at the moment, Ashish? Experiences. You know, I like I love to learn about different people doing different things in different industries because it kind of helps me expand what I'm doing personally and professionally. And so I think it's important to make sure that you're always having outside influences and forces that you're talking to of, of people who are doing interesting things and inspiring things that keep you motivated thinking. And is there, is there one you could share with us that somebody that you think, yeah, that really motivates me to want to look at that or change the way I'm viewing something. Yeah, there's a gentleman I'm going to be talking to soon that he was actually in jail for for 17 years and he managed to get the prison system and everyone in the prison to work together rather than fight with each other. And to me, that's an amazing um, accomplishment. And now he's in corporate America, but the fact that he's getting these different factions who are essentially gangs within, these, within the jail system to actually work as a team and have a common goal is an amazing human behavior experiment. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. Ashish, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you today and uh, thank you very much for your time. If people wanted to find out more about you and what your organizations are doing, where's the best place for them to check you out? They should go to consciouslyunbiased.com. On our website, we have everything that we do, all our social media handles and things like that. So I would go there and use that as a first step to reach out to us. Well, thank you very much. I think the work you're doing with Consciously Unbiased, it looks amazing. It's really getting the conversation uh, going. And uh, yeah, I'm definitely going to be following you and putting an order in for for some T-shirts and maybe even a hoodie as well. So maybe the dog will get treated (laughs) as well. Love the designs. Love what you're trying to do. Thank Thank you you very much. Thank you. This is wonderful. This podcast also has a website. The address is www.workingforcompassion.com and that's the number four, not the letter four. On the website, there's more information about how compassion, mindfulness and emotional intelligence is influencing the world of work. You'll also find my story detailing my journey to date and what has motivated me to start this podcast and website. You can also sign up to my newsletter And that will update you when I release new podcasts. Be great if you could do that. So why not take a look at www.workingforcompassion.com. And yet that's the number four, not the letter four. I'm going to be releasing lots of new episodes with more great guests over the next few weeks. So please sign up to the newsletter. And until next time, go well.